Hello, and welcome to the Art of Autism podcast. I'm Andy Boyd. My guest today on the program is Tessa Jaskolski. Uh, Tessa, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. Uh, thanks for having me. You may have heard me pause there for a second because I was trying to think of what I should say to describe who you are. <laughs> uh, you know, sometimes I would say, you know, uh, this person, a writer, this person, a sculptor. But with your art, I, I have a more difficult time, you know, saying, putting a noun to what exactly it is that you do. So how, uh, let's start there. How do you define yourself as an artist? Um, I, <laughs> that's difficult. I have a hard time with like definitions sometimes because I just, I see every single detail at the same time. But, um, but I, you know, my emphasis is in metals and jewelry and I've been doing most of that from home and the, the metals part of things is difficult to do from home, especially with chronic pain and things and not really having the most ergonomic setup. So, um, but I make wearable art as, um, kind of the wearable conceptual art is kind of the goal. Um, does that <laughs> make a little bit, and I'm an art student and I usually kind of like start there um, because I still feel like, I don't know if this is going to go away when I graduate magically, probably not, but I feel like I'm in kind of a exploratory stage still a little bit, but yeah, wearable jewelry mostly or wearable, wearable art jewelry. Yeah. yeah. I think that, I think that um, exploratory, mindset is probably helpful whether you're a student or not yeah definitely it's um yeah I feel like I don't I don't know sometimes I feel like I have to pick something I have to like figure it out right now and um but I just keep finding things that are more interesting than the last thing and I don't know so maybe I'll always just kind of be moving around and changing things and maybe that's just okay um how did you first get interested in art um, well, it's kind of a long story. I, um, when I first came to school, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And then when I was 19, I, in my sophomore year, or I guess second year, I had a really bad breakdown and I didn't know, I had no idea. I didn't know I was autistic back then and I didn't know I had ADHD. So I had no idea what was going on with me. And I kept ending up in hospitals and different treatment programs where there was art therapy. And at the time, I also thought that, um, I was dealing with depression and anxiety and like, that's it. So with depression, I already always had some form of anxiety. Like I knew that. So um, depression, I felt, you know, well, that clearly that must be what's actually wrong this time. Like that must be why everything is worse was my kind of reasoning at the time. And they, with depression, they tell you to, you know, like try to pick up new hobbies or pick up old hobbies that you used to have that you're not doing anymore. So it was partially, you know, art therapy was a really um, good outlet for me and a really good way. I liked the way of kind of putting my experiences that were hard to describe into a work of art. And part of it, too, was, you know, I thought I really wanted to get better. Whatever was going on with me, I wanted to just to just go away and, you know, not have to deal with it anymore. And I thought, you know, if I can just, I don't know, hobby myself to good mental health maybe that's what I need and um and then when I left I eventually I went through a residential treatment program and it was kind of there that I or for mood disorders at the time I got diagnosed with borderline personality disorder but still hadn't had the ADHD or autism diagnosis and um so through there I was you know really really getting into it and really kind of 
I didn't really know what kind of careers were available to me. So I thought, you know, oh, I'll be an art teacher. I'll, um, I don't know. It's kind of while in residential, I thought, you know, I'll be an art, I'll be an art teacher. And then, um, I don't know. And then I was like, maybe I'll do graphic design and not really sure what I wanted to do. I don't know what was available. And, but when I went back to school, I, after that horrible year, I, um, went to the art school and I think I started out with graphic design and um yeah I mean so that's you know kind of how it started and then the first year of art school I, I did that whole first year still not having an ADHD diagnosis and we have these studio classes that are like almost three hours and um I remember getting super frustrated and like running out of the room crying and everything just you know, because I like, I couldn't focus for as long as everyone else. And I was just like, I couldn't just sit there and work like everyone else. So I don't know. And then I just felt like I just didn't really understand what was being taught. I didn't understand like in the studio classes with hands-on stuff. Um, I, you know, and that would make more sense to me later. But at the time I was just like, why am I bad at everything? Like what's happening, you know? And like, why it just, I don't know. But then the second year um, was a lot better. I um, met uh, who I now consider to be an uh, incredible mentor, Teresa Ferris, who is a metalsmith and jeweler. jeweler and she, um, I, my schedule worked out where I had to take like two classes with her back to back on the same day, twice a week. So that was like six hours um, just with one professor. And I hadn't had, you know, the best luck or like really great connections with the other art professors. So I was super worried and, but it ended up being fantastic. And she really pushed the whole like conceptual part of things, like really having, really knowing what you're talking about and really having a meaning behind everything and really, you know, thinking and questioning and keep asking questions, keep asking why. And, um, and that kind of brought me back to, I think, you know, what originally got me into all of this and what was so, what felt so good about it, which was, you know, art therapy and expression and taking these things that are, you know, difficult to convey with words and difficult to um, talk about or understand and kind of encoding them into a work of art. And, um, and then that thing continue, the thing that you make continues to teach you even years after. And the whole process felt really magical and it was really something that I needed at the time as I was like getting sicker and, you know, my mental health wasn't really getting better. I didn't really have all the answers. So, um, I had a lot to think about and a lot to unpack. And I think, you know, that was, I think what really, really got me into it. Like finally, like that, I was like fall of 2019. And then ever since then, it's kind of felt like this, um, I don't know. It's it's been something that I feel like I'll always have and I'll always need. You know, this process of of making things and um and I don't know, almost as a form of like validation or just I don't mm -hmm. know. Yeah, making things to understand. It kind of sounds like the context of art therapy has stayed with you to an extent. Would you say that's true? Yeah, definitely. I think I don't know. I dealt with a lot of invalidation, especially not knowing what was going on with me. And um, I think that was a form of validation. That was something that, you know, I could make this thing and this thing 
would be validating, even if no one else around me, even if I wasn't validating myself. Mm. Yeah, that's a lot to put on your art. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I don't think I ever really fully intended it to do that. Or I don't, I don't really think that that was, you know, I was, I went into it like this is going to um, fix everything. I think I just sat in like an art therapy session and was just going through the motions. And um, I don't know, there was something about it that I kept coming back to. There's something about it that always felt satisfying. And um, yeah, I'm not sure exactly exactly what it was you know it's hard to i don't fully mm -hmm. remember everything i went through in art therapy um so it's hard to compare but i do know that those are kind of the the roots there there's a line in a uh, jorge luis borges prose poem where he's talking about poetry and he he says these lines justify me and I really oh. held on to that for a really long time. And this idea that like, if I didn't like anything about myself, at least if I liked my writing, that was kind of a way to, you know, justify my own existence. But that does yeah. kind of presuppose that your existence needs to be justified. That's right? true. Yeah. I I don't I like that. The, these lines justify me. Like I like. Oh, you're supposed that. to not like it. That's the point of my anecdote. <laughs> I said, no, I mean, I like, I like the line. I don't, no, you know, but I'm it's like, it's complicated. You know, I get that. I, yeah, man, I don't even know. I, um, that's a really good point. I felt like I just, I needed something, but then yeah, you're right. I mean, what? I don't know, but I don't. I don't know if that's the only role that it it fills. Um, but it does. I think do a little bit of that. Yeah, I don't know. Mm -hmm. I've never thought about that before, so my mind's just kind of like, oh <laughs> no wow, opened a new door in there. Yeah. <laughs> you use a word in your artist statement uh, that I haven't heard before, which is interoception. Could you explain what interoception means? Yeah, um, interoception is kind of the in, uh, state, like the sense of, um, it's like one of, we have, we think there's like five senses, and then some people say that there's more, and interoception is like one of them. Um, there's, yeah, um, interoception is kind of like a sense of the internal states of the body, so knowing when you're hungry or thirsty, and um, just like when you're tired, when you need to stop, and um, so it's basically what it is. And mine tends to be either turned like zero, they either just completely shut off or just like all the way to the max. Like, I feel like I'm not, you know, I've heard some people say like, I just have no sense of interoception. It's hard to remember to eat, to sleep, to do any of this. And then for me, I feel like it's, I don't know, but with chronic illness, um, of fibromyalgia and in 2019, like late 2019, it started getting worse. And so, um, I started, or my therapist at the time uh, told me about pacing, which is kind of this, and she had these worksheets for it, and she was researching it too, and she had this, um, it's this process of kind of, of doing, of kind of like tuning into that interoception of, of not overextending yourself, but in order to know like what that even is, like what your limits even are, you kind of have to like, it's a lot of trial and error, and you have to sort of be aware of that, and that was super hard for me but um i think that process going through that process um and getting better at learning what it felt like to be in my body also was part of what led to me realizing that i was autistic 
so it's kind of this like center piece in my you know it's the title it's you know kind of the what the um show is called because it's this about this like connection to the body and then connection to everything else and all of the all of the messy stuff that that opens up and and all of the stuff that that leads to yeah i i don't have chronic illness but i do have a lot of sensory sensitivities like autism related sensitive sensitivities and um a lot looking at a lot of the pieces in your uh collection made me kind of physically uncomfortable you know like there's <laughs> really? something very like 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 you have like um a creature that's made entirely out of shirt tags and i can handle shirt tags now but for a long time um i i might like my mom had to cut them out of all of my shirts and had to cut them close enough that like the little bit of the tag that survived the cut wasn't still there and you know i would like <laughs> rip them out of my shirts when i was a kid so then when i saw that it was like you know, I, I understand what you're going for on a conceptual level, but there's like a part of my lizard brain that's like, nope, nope, I don't <laughs> like it. So yeah. is that discomfort something you were kind of consciously going for in the in, in this collection? Yeah, I mean, I was kind of trying to deal with a little bit of like, you know, comfort versus discomfort in the way that, um, I don't know, because I went through that process. Or I guess, you know, part of this interoception for me has been um, realizing what my sensory sensitivities are because I just kind of like learned to tune them out. And then I was just kind of always uncomfortable and didn't know why, but I didn't know how to like isolate it to, oh, it's the tag or, oh, it's this thing or that thing. It's like, I'm just always like this. So I don't know what's, what I'm supposed to feel like. Um, but, you know, part of interoception was realizing like, oh, these lights are super bright and obnoxious. And I like my brain just shuts down when I'm under them or when, it, you know, um, I don't have the curtains closed or anything or and the tags was one of those situations where I was just like sitting down and doing something. I don't even know what. And then all of a sudden I realized like, oh, my God, the tags, the tags are making my back hurt. Like, I don't you know, I used to think I had like a trigger point, like where the tag would hit. And it wasn't you know, it was it was just the tag. Um, so I went through that process of like, I went through all of my shirts and I cut out the tags and I kind of put them in a pile and I just sort of like, I don't know, like I, I wanted to throw them away, but then I also kind of like, was like, I don't, you know, there was something about the pile that I felt like, I don't know, is it the tags fault that they're uncomfortable? Like I, um, a lot of the monster, you know, like the tag monster relates to this idea of um, not wanting to throw things away because I, you know, part of masking for me too is kind of feeling like I want to, I don't know, like I just, I don't want to be um, thrown away, I guess, for lack of a better way of explaining it. I don't know. Um, but the thing about the tag monster, the thing about tag, that piece too, is that it's a brooch. So it doesn't actually touch the tags don't actually touch the skin, they face the outside. Um, so it's kind of like a way to still utilize the tags and kind of have them explore my relationship with the tags, uh, you know, and have them be usable somehow or still wearable by me, who, you know, they're just on the outside of um, my clothes instead of on the inside. So it was, yeah. And Tacky also has three eyes, which I, I take to be sort of like a, a commentary on the kind of constant demand to make eye contact, which is like, listen, if you want to look at an eye, here's three of them. 
Yeah. I don't even remember like what my thought process is with the eyes. I, I don't know the eyes, the amount of eyes on the monster. I can't really, I feel like that's something I'll realize later. Like, Oh, this was how I decided that. But I, it's just kind of whatever feels right, I guess. But then at the end of it, I thought, Oh, that's funny. It's looking in like three different directions. Like, you know, it's this kind of um, contradictory being like, you don't really know what to do with it. And I, you know, liked that effect. What do you like about monsters? I, um, I'm trying to think of how I like started with the monster thing, because I remember the first time I tried to explain it to everyone else in my class, they were like, what? Because <laughs> there are a lot of monsters in your, in your work. I mean, it's not all monsters, but you know, you have three or four monsters. Yeah. I mean, monsters for me kind of symbolize this sort of, like I related it to interoception because it is, you know, it's related to that, but they symbolize this kind of like in between space, like liminal space um, uh, between like, you know, or I don't know, between two places, like in, in literature, there's this whole, um, I have a friend who's really interested in, in monster theory and I was reading these, oh man, I can't remember the um, the name of the paper, but it's like the seven theses of, of monster theory. And um, it kind of talks about how in, in folklore, the, you know, monsters kind of symbolize a sort of cultural discomfort. And I thought that was a really interesting way to kind of talk about disability, but also kind of, you know, reclaim that, reclaim you know, the monster, and then to just kind of take the, I don't know, like, there was something about just, I noticed that I, I tend to collect things too, like garbage and um, things that I just, I can't fully bring myself to throw away. Uh, or I just think, oh, that's interesting, I'll use it. Part, COVID was probably part of this, because I was like, well, now I can just, I'm doing mixed media, I'm not, you know, just using metals anymore. So like, maybe I could use this in a piece or, or something. But um I don't know. I started to think about like what garbage means, you know, like what, um, you know, what it means to throw something away and just this kind of like general sort of climate anxiety, but then the contradiction of then also needing to like use paper plates and not always being able to afford the compostable, compostable ones and just all of that kind of messy stuff. I felt like I could almost relate to the monsters in a way, like relate to this sort of in-between space of, you know, you're not quite um, in one place, you're not quite in another. Uh, and I don't know, I think I started to, the monsters kind of started around the same time I was starting to come to terms with, I mean, not starting, I had kind of been tossing it around in my head for about a year, but that, I think it, it was like a month before I was officially diagnosed that I um, started, you know, messing around with the monsters i'm not sure i'm not sure if any of that was coherent but i no, um, no that was that was good yeah yeah that's that's good because i just um i don't know they're hard to explain i think there's a lot it's one of those things i feel like i'm i'm gonna keep realizing more and more things about them i've been thinking a lot i don't know if you're like a comic book reader at all but i've been thinking a lot about beast from x-men um as as like a sort of monstrous figure that that i've been identifying with lately and specifically something about beast is that periodically he undergoes further evolutions that kind of take him further away from what is recognizably human 
so like first he was just like a guy with big feet and then he kind of looks like a blue monkey and now he looks kind of like a blue cat um and i've been thinking about this over the period of quarantine of like you know am i going to go back out into the the social world having not really interacted with strangers in a year and just be sort of like further from from the norm than ever before yeah yeah i've never seen x-men but it always seemed like something i would like so i don't or i've never like watched it or you know seen any of the read any of the comic books but i you know but that idea of something of like changing and i don't know i relate to that i'm always kind of like my process of sort of like trying to unmask also started like during covid so i can't tell if like am i just like is this normal or is this are you unmasking or are you just alone yeah Yeah. like am i i have no idea like do i i don't know do i want to go back to talking to strangers waiting in line maybe not i don't know but yeah that idea of just kind of evolving away from um yeah yeah i don't know I, I like that idea i like that you know and the the whole idea too of, of monsters being sort of outcasts um i think relates here too and i think that's a theme in x-men i'm not 100 percent sure but i vaguely oh, yeah. remember that being a thing um, Tessa, that is the only theme in x-men <laughs> okay good, <laughs> um, good another, I got it. another monster that's maybe less sympathetic is the self-care cyclops um you know speaking of, of x-men let's keep it going on that la- that line um, which, and your, your statement for that is, is kind of this, uh, prose poem about self-care Cyclops and all the contradictory demands that self-care Cyclops makes on you and on all of us. Um, which I thought was a really great piece of writing because to me, it, it really seems like, uh, the, the culture of self-care has become kind of just another set of rules that I'm bad at following. Oh, you know? yeah. That's a great way to describe it. Like, just another set of rules that I've had it following. Yeah. So, is, um, and so can you talk about your, your kind of experience with the sort of self-care, I don't know, philosophy? Um. Yeah, I just, okay, so self-care Cyclops is, you know, kind of like my original idea with that was I'm going to take all of these medications I use, all of these you know, kind of contradictory different food. Like I have this like egg carton for the eye and then it's wrapped in like organic vegan popcorn packaging, but it's, you know, plastic packaging. And then, you know, like kind of all of this sort of contradictory. And then there's like birth control, which is, you know, super bad for you, apparently according to some people or super good for, I don't know, just kind of like all of these um, things, especially being on the internet. um, I feel like there's all of this kind of like, people and being chronically ill there's you know you're always going to have people on the internet or otherwise that are sort of offering these miracle cures and it's going to be in the form of like oh paleo or um you know some kind of diet or some kind of um probiotic or some kind of something or they're you know it feels like health is so or just access to healthcare is so kind of messy and you don't always get like i feel like we don't always get like clear answers or don't really understand you know the process of understanding what your body specifically needs is really messy and complicated um and then among that you have to deal with you know other people's opinions of or other people's conceptualizations of you know um you you know medication is evil don't take medication or you know whatever um 
yeah so just this kind of like complicated relationship i guess it's you know i have a complicated relationship with the idea of of self-care and um and the idea of like i don't know sometimes it feels commercialized sometimes it feels mm-hmm. like you know um and sometimes it feels like like, I don't really know what it means. And then part of unmasking, too, has been, like, trying to figure out, like, what do I actually need? Like, not what other people need, what not what people have told me I need. Like, what do I actually need to function and not burn out again? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's it's also it's also very kind of individualizing in a, like, neoliberal sense that it's like you have to care for yourself, yeah. even if your world is not caring for you. Like, even if you know, your government doesn't give you adequate health care and, you know, food subsidies mean that it's way easier to eat, you know, food that's bad for you than food that's good for you. You still have to care for yourself. Right. It feels very much like, I don't know, or just like that, like this, you know, very individualistic, like um, it's just, it's all about personal responsibility and you can just, you know, um, self-care yourself out of any bad situation. But in, in reality, it's just, it's much more, complicated and i think navigating that is hard especially when you don't meet people's i guess stereotype or people's expectation of like what um i don't know like what good if you're self-caring good enough if you're you know doing all of the following all of the rules of of self-care so that you can yeah it feels very much just like and like you said it almost a little bit like an excuse of like you know, it, you know, the government doesn't doesn't have to make sure people can um, eat and like get health care and have basic necessities because self care solves it all. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. um, another one of your pieces that I really loved is called "Consuming Minutia," which you talk about. Sort of, um, it's 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 a sort of wearable miniature bed. And you talk about how it kind of reverses our expectations about beds, which are supposed to be vertical, but, or which are supposed to be horizontal, but which you've made vertical, similarly to how, you know, people are supposed to be vertical, uh, but that's often impossible when you're chronically ill. Could you, could you talk a bit about that piece and kind of where it, where it comes from and what you're trying to say with it? Yeah, definitely. Um, That bed or that, you know, sort of bed piece that was made with sort of actual, um, actual the like the sheets and part of the blanket that i used to use i stopped using polyester so like on my trying like directly on my skin because i started getting bad reactions to it so um so i have been repurposing it or that was kind of the first time that i repurposed it into this bed and it looks it's the same sheets and part of the same blanket that you know i actually i actually used and um and then sort of has the string light so i was kind of creating this sort of wearable environment of the um the first time that i i got sick which kind of like fall 2019 or just the first time that i got really really like there's no hiding this there's no um you know not talking to other people about this there's no not getting accommodations like this has to be addressed this has to this is visible now um, this is, you know, this is happening and I can't hide from it anymore. And that's kind of what, you know, that those feelings that would come up when I was just, you know, I want to be in school and I want to be working on stuff in the studio and I'm just like stuck here in bed and everything hurts. And part of the, 
this bed in particular came at a time when I was having um, symptoms. I don't have a diagnosis for this yet, but it's um, it seems a lot like sort of autonomic dysfunction. So when it gets bad and it seems to be related to when I take certain medications, like it seems to only happen as a side effect to things or it doesn't, not exclusively, but it gets bad as a side effect to things. I don't really understand it. But um, basically when I stand up or just when I'm upright, I can get any, you know, any combination of things from like headaches or postural headaches that kind of come and go depending on my posture to really bad fatigue and palpitations and um, just kind of sweating and it's miserable. And then if I like lay down when I, I feel better, it doesn't go away right away, but it feels mm-hmm. better. And then it's really hard to be a student when you're just like laying down all the time. So that's kind of what it was, what that was about. You know, it came at a time when I was dealing with this and I was like just stuck in bed and that feeling of like, oh my God, all the things I have to do to avoid being stuck in bed. Yeah, I'm curious about this in the context of like this past year. Um, are there ways that being stuck at home have be- has been helpful for you? Yeah, definitely. There's been times when I've been able to go to class from bed where otherwise I just wouldn't. Like I would just, you know, we use WebEx for like a video chat or video platform and I could, I, there's a phone app and I could just, it's not great, but I could hear what was happening in class from bed and that's not something that was really possible before so it's you know it's not an ideal situation part of me still misses being in the studio but there were times that I remember very clearly where just being stuck in bed and not being able to go to school was awful and so I don't know it was complicated but that was kind of part of it where it was like I could still I could still do stuff and if I you know I didn't need to get out of bed get dressed and then go walk like 15 minutes and then be at a different place all day and then walk 15 minutes back. It was sort of, you know, if I'm down for the count by noon, at least I had a couple hours in the morning. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. One of the things that you do in a lot of your pieces is you make use of material that you've used in your daily life. Like we've talked about the tags, we've talked about the bedding. There's also a piece called Allergen, where one of the materials that's listed is hydrocortisone cream. Could you talk a little bit about why you like using materials like that, that are kind of repurposed from, you know, your, your daily life? Yeah. Um, I think I just, I kind of develop a really close connection to objects, especially if I, if I use them often, it seems like they, they carry an emotional energy and I just, you know, and that's a part of that emotional energy is why it's sort of hard to get rid of them, especially if they're, even if they're like not useful, like string lights that don't work anymore, you know? So the hydrocortisone cream, I just kind of had on my hands. This is when my eczema was getting really bad on my hands and I never had it on my hands before. So I was like, oh my God, what's happening to me? And I was just trying everything. And um, I found a solution. It seemed to be like a textile dermatitis thing, but, but that period of time was super like was super stressful because I didn't, didn't know what was happening. And I, that's the worst part is when you have new symptoms and then now I got to problem solve this one, figure this one out. So yeah. So I like kind of had hydrocortisone cream on my hands and it yellowed the, I didn't do it at first, but over time it yellowed the surface of the white 
cotton that I wrapped around there. And I thought like, oh, that was, that wasn't even intentional, but that was kind of cool. Like before you couldn't even see it. So I felt like I, you know, I should probably put that in the list of materials because that, you know, that kind of like came out on its own, became visible. Yeah. Um, another piece is social competence, um, which is sort of a choker necklace um, that has all these kind of gold star uh, um, stickers on it. Um, that are partially obscuring the sentence that it seems to say, I am the sum of my behaviors. I have no inherent value. And that's kind of being hidden or maybe, you know, um, like highlighted by these good job gold star stickers. Could could you talk about the inspiration behind that piece a bit? Yeah. Um, I think the statement come came from, I'm not, entirely sure i think i was trying to research like the the controversy around aba and why you know i never heard of it before so i think i was and i I stumbled on that because there were sometimes people would talk about you know what their experiences were like and i didn't do aba but i did cbt which is kind of like based in behaviorism and i you know went through a period of time where i was sort of obsessed with cbt and obsessed with it. it was just kind of masking um, on stereo, uh, it, it was like masking therapy edition, uh, where I was just like, I just need to do all the correct behaviors and then I'll feel better. Um, and because I thought, you know, if I wasn't feeling better, if I wasn't doing well, it was because I was doing some kind of maladaptive behavior. And that was definitely, um, part of it. And I was also thinking of just like, um, the way that people see me as sort of socially competent and being able to navigate you know i'm you like you you know you can't be autistic you show social reciprocity and not being able to like really convey accurately for somebody who doesn't experience it to understand like how much work goes into all of that all of the decisions that i'm making and all of the the stress of it and all of the pressure that i know other people who like i know that non-autistic people are not going through that same thing but it's hard to convey. So I think the choker was very much, you know, like there's all these reward stickers and you get this kind of rush of dopamine when you're sort of, um, or I would get this rush of dopamine when I felt like I did something right. Like I did, you know, I smiled evenly and I did this thing correctly. And I, um, I did something right. I did the social cue right. You know, I don't really understand why or how, but I did it right. And that feels good. And I want to chase that feeling, but then it leads to burnout. So this just kind of like unsustainable, you know, and then just feeling like I have no idea who I am because I just like everything I do is I'm just trying to do the right behavior all the time. I'm trying to first of all figure out what that is and then do it as much as possible. So I don't feel like the that lack of safety that I feel that kind of like confusion, that void of like, I don't know what's happening when I'm in this space where I'm not doing the right thing socially. So this is sort of a piece that is is trying to get that across to people, like trying to convey like what it feels like when you're really trying to weigh all of your behaviors and you're trying to make sure that you're doing everything correctly, even though you don't know what really constitutes a, a quote unquote correct behavior. Um, yeah, so that's that's basically it's just sort of I was trying to like I was trying to get across that sort of physical, some sort of physical manifestation of that. Yeah. 
Um, finally, could you tell us a bit about what you're working on lately? Um, yeah, I, so I just finished this show and, um, a little, and right, I'm just kind of finishing up school and trying to get, you know, I'm moving to a different apartment. So that's kind of taking up most of my, that's what you're working on is moving to a different apartment. (laughs) Partially. Yeah. But you know, I'm thinking about, um, my next, we have two milestones or no, we have three, the entry and the junior show. I just did the junior show. So then the senior show is going to be next spring for me. And, um, I'm thinking about sort of exploring, I guess, childhood and like being, you know, this process of, of learning to mask being the sort of uprooting from who I really was and then trying to find who that person is again. Um, I don't fully know what that's going to look like yet, but that's kind of what I'm leaning towards. I realized I should have asked this much earlier in the interview, but I realized when you said that I didn't know, um, where, where are you? Like, where will your senior show be? Oh, um, I'm in Wisconsin. It'll be, um, I'm in Whitewater, Wisconsin, a UW-Whitewater. So we have a Crossman Gallery in our, um, it's called the Crossman Gallery in our art building. And um, and that's, I'm pretty sure, I mean, all things, as long as everything's okay with COVID, which I'm yeah. hoping by then uh, it is, that'll be my first show in the Crossman Gallery. And I don't, I don't know much about that because my entry and junior show were both virtual. Um, so yeah, my first actual gallery, <laughs> gallery show that is mine, a little intimidating. Okay. Hear that Wisconsin based listeners that, that is hopefully going to be next year. All things uh, <laughs> uh, going yeah. well. Yeah. Well, Tessa, thanks so much for being on the Art of Autism podcast. It's been really great to get to talk to you. Also, yeah, it's been great to talk to you. Thanks for having me. Once again, that was Tessa Jaskolski. You can find her work at the Instagram link that is in the show notes of this episode. Once again, I'm Andy Boyd, and this has been the Art of Autism podcast. <laughs>